I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is someone I'm delighted to be welcoming back to the podcast after just under two years. Back then, he was the relatively new CEO at Hanover Re, and some of my questioning probed what sort of things he might do differently from his predecessors. Now into his fourth year in charge, and Jean-Jacques Onchot is the seasoned boss of a reinsurer that has not skipped a beat since its leadership transition. Very strong growth has continued, and results have been excellent. In the first question in this podcast, I dared ask if Hanover Reed's growth streak could continue now that the already third largest reinsurance group in the world is far closer to the number two spot than the number four is to it. The answer was a very frank, yes for now, and that set the tone for everything that was to follow. I learned a lot about a huge range of topics, including views on the Ukraine war, Florida, resurgent inflation, and the prospects for cyber ILS. I also discovered how the strong growth environment has created the conditions that have made COVID reinsurance disputes far fewer in number than we thought they might have been two years ago. Jean-Jacques is clearly at the top of his game, and I couldn't recommend this episode more highly as not only a crystal clear view into the reinsurance industry's standout performer of the past 15 years, but a really useful primer for the autumn conference season and the testing end-of-year renewals to come. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Well, Jean-Jacques, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. It has been two years, Mark. I can't believe it's, it has been two years and a lot has happened in then. In fact, a huge amount of what's been happening is your growth has continued to be incredibly impressive. Jean-Jacques, was it about 26% again in Q2, which you've just declared? That growth is so impressive. But now you are really a substantial reinsurer. It's pretty difficult for you to say that you're this kind of small guy anymore against the bigger two. Do you think at some point you're going to get to the point where you've got that kind of market share where you can't actually grow any more faster than the market? That's a very good question, Mark, and one which we ask ourselves as well. Uh, it's true that when we look back, there's been a, a tremendous momentum when it comes to, to growth. It's not only top line, it's also bottom line, of course. That's what we look at. But what we've seen is, uh, first of all, that you have a higher demand for highly rated reinsurers. So that has played in our favor. We also work very well with the broker community, which helps identify new opportunities for growth. And last but not least, we've been growing with our clients. A number of clients have asked us to join more of the treaties, more of across-the-board players. So the, the momentum has been very good in the pricing environment, which is better. Whether it continues like that depends, of course, on the price environment. At some stage, it will, of course, be more difficult than what we're trying to do strategically is positioning the group for future growth. And, and one example the effort we're making 
in Asia-Pacific, which is uh, more of a long-term play. And I think uh, there might be opportunities down the road when possibly the growth in Europe or in the U.S. might be a bit harder. But, but at some stage, clearly, there is this so-called glass ceiling, which you reached, and uh, this becomes a bit more difficult. But I think we're not yet there. And if the, the market momentum uh, continues, I, I hope we can uh, continue on our trajectory in 23 and beyond. And I suppose that, that's the sort of moment where you, you start to see business that you've already seen before and that you already declined before. Exactly. And, and you know, what, what is important is that the underwriters keep their focus on bottom line and expect profitability. Uh, there should never be any incentive uh, on the underwriters to chase top line. So if at any one year, you know, growth rate in terms of top line performance is less pronounced, it perfectly well with me. I think it's the long-term trajectory which counts. And of course, we need top line growth to make sure we can increase our earnings going forward. But no incentive on top line. This is not a, a KPI for us. No, absolutely. No, thinking back to my first encounter of the Hanover, it was profit is sanity, volume is vanity. I think it was one of the, the great sayings of one of your predecessors. Absolutely. Yeah. We keep them in our culture, for sure. So it was interesting what you said about Asia. Do you think you're built a platform there now that's ready to pick up that growth that will surely come at some point in the future? Well, we're growing quite steadily in Asia. It's, of course, a competitive market. The distinctive feature in many of the, the markets is that the insurance penetration is still low. So I think there is a long-term opportunity and, and one of the priorities for us is to tandem with our clients to team up and try to identify joint opportunities to tap into what I see as a, a protection gap currently. So insurance penetration will be the main driver for growth for our clients, but also for us indirectly as their preferred insurers. It takes a lot of time. You know, there's a lot of work uh, in, into uh, putting this in practice. In the short term, we still have good growth opportunities. The main one is to broaden our partnerships with the existing clients, and, and we're very happy with that. You alluded to before that if you have the right partners, then they grow for you, particularly if you've got a proportional relationship. That's exactly that. You know, that's what we try to do and make sure that we, we team up with those who are showing sound on the writing, uh, discipline and consistency, and then helping them whenever needed with knowledge of exchange, with underwriting advice. It is a partnership and uh, we rely on their growth trajectory. That's the goal. It's interesting in a period where we've had a lot of underwriting remediation amongst all your peer group. I was just wondering, I mean, what is it about Hanover Re that means that you haven't had to go through that kind of remediation? You've been able to keep that growth steady throughout and in fact accelerate the growth. The general rule in Hanover Re is that we keep key focus on underwriting, quality, discipline, selective underwriting. We are very clear on our risk appetite with our clients or with prospects. So we keep that consistent approach. So it, it limits a little bit the room for major errors. I think it's fair to say that in PNC, we try to avoid large bets and have a, a keen eye on our diversification. So that's another element which helps making sure that we're not trapped into an unexpected situation. But it's not like we never make mistakes. Uh, I have to be clear on that. We try to make small mistakes and avoid the larger mistakes. But we constantly correct based on experience, based on things we haven't seen before. And, and we are, as you know, a reinsurer which has high reserves. So we reserve the business very high at inception. 
which gives us a little bit of a wiggle room down the road when we see that experience might not be with pricing assumptions. So that's playing a role. But it's it's a constant learning and the hope that we don't incur large bets and end up with, uh, with large mistakes, which we need to correct very suddenly. We're not immune from them. Yeah. Do you try to be as consistent as possible rather than being the sort of reinsurer that sometimes comes asking for more business to be the one that is being fairly consistent where that everyone knows what you want and you'll do it if you get what you want? You need flexibility. You need agility. Whenever we take a decision, whenever we clarify our appetite, we do it in the context of a long-term relationship. And that means that if we engage, the intent is to stay and not just question our stance the following year. So consistency over time pays off. And I think we're going to continue to play that game. Yeah. So it's not really your game to be saying we'll be overweight this year because we like the price. You don't play any of those kind of games, or particularly with things like cat, which obviously which vary so quickly. There's always an element of opportunism on a one-off basis uh, here and there during the renewal. So I will not exclude that, but it's not driving decision-making. This is not the, the way we do our underwriting, the way we select risks. So we try to be very mindful of our general framework and, and articulate a risk appetite, which is then executed in practice, renewal after renewal. So what's your feeling about rate adequacy at the moment? We've just come through the mid-year renewals. Are you, are you happy? I'm happy because I see price momentum. I don't see a hard market yet, I should say. The price adjustments have been reflecting large losses. We had COVID, we had a number of NACAT events. We also had some man-made events. So price adjustments are, are following losses incurred by the market. But I think there are more fundamental aspects which hint at a hardening of the market in 2023. Notably, the pressures from shareholders on returns. And that means that underwriters across the business they feel that they, they really need to, to improve rate adequacy. And this disciplining factor will have a bearing on the pricing outcomes in 2023. Adding to that, of course, you have inflation, which will need to be reflected in the pricing of reinsurance uh, covers. So that's what's happening today. So I'm, I'm quite happy. I think we need more. We're not yet where we need to be, but I'm quite hopeful about 2023. Obviously, we've had quite a lot of moves in uh, property reinsurance. We've had withdrawals, which we don't see very often. I don't know about you, but I would always assume as an outsider, as an observer of the market, that property is almost like a core line. It's part of being a reinsurer. Like when you go into the supermarket, you expect them to have bread and milk and eggs. And for me, it's kind of property reinsurance is the bread and milk and eggs of reinsurance. But it seems that obviously that a lot of dynamics are changing. And obviously, we're talking about property cat here. What's going to happen with that going into one one? We've had a quite difficult mid-year renewal. Is it going to continue to harden, I presume? I do believe it's continuing to harden. A number of players have had a need for correction or even exit in some cases. And indeed, it's counterintuitive because this is where you know, our clients need our help. But I think CAPS is a line of business which you can make profitable over time. You need that really that sense of diversification. You need strict pricing discipline. You need to look into terms of conditions, wordings. And that's a business where you need to be consistent over time. You cannot enter, exit, enter, exit. That doesn't work. 
And this being said, increasing demand combined with some exits in the market are creating hard market conditions. So that's a good way to keep our focus on, on cat. We're not a huge cat writers compared to some. We're prominent, but we're cognizant of the peak risk zone, in particular in the US. So we try to keep the diversification. We've been growing in Europe lately, which is good. It helps the diversification. But we're going to be consistent while not exaggerating or adding too much exposure. So we'll, we'll be disciplined again. But I see cats as an area of growth. Is it just a readjustment in many ways that, that your appetite itself, has it changed fundamentally? Or is it that you're seeing an opportunity, for example, to program away from more attritional type losses? And is it just a readjustment to after maybe 10 years of softening that had happened before we had this hardening? Yeah, I think there is a reaction to, to the pricing environment, clearly. And apart from that, the geographical diversification is driving our decision-making. So, so we see that there is potential different markets and different regions, and that's an opportunity for us to go for it in 2023. This being said, as I mentioned, we really monitor our aggregates very diligently, and we don't want to destroy the diversification. Yeah. There's an element of opportunity. The timing is right, cycle management. And there is an element of adjustment of our diversification or improvement of our diversification. Florida is obviously having a very difficult time, perhaps one of its periodic insurance crises. There have been some reforms there on the ground and legislative reforms, tort reforms. Do you think they're going to help change the market in any fundamental way? Does it give you more optimism? I'm not very optimistic about Florida these days. I've seen a lot of political reactions lately to the shortage of capacity. Yeah. It is a market signal that the price of risk needs to be reflected in pricing. There were some legal reforms, but they didn't really go enough, and that still led to market participants leaving the market. And Hanover really is, is not very large in, in Florida. This is a market we've been trying yeah. to limit in terms of exposure. But I think the political interference is too high and the debate is not broad enough because one should not challenge the insurance industry because of their pricing. One should ask ourselves, why is the exposure increasing? You know, what do we need to do to decrease this exposure? These are discussions around building standards. These are discussions about you know, not building in floodplains, etc., etc. And this discussion is not being taken up by most politicians. And this is what needs to change. Otherwise, the only way is to establish public insurance schemes. But in the end, the taxpayers are contributing to the losses uh, instead of the insurance industry. This is not a sustainable option. So the short response is, no, I'm not very optimistic, unfortunately, in the short term. I hope in the longer term, policymakers will see there is a need for a broader debate. Yes, because I see that Citizens is likely to go through a million policyholders again, which we haven't seen for almost 10 years. So yes, these things all go in cycles, I'm sure. The politics also goes in cycles as well as reinsurance. So we shall see. <laughs> we'll, we'll need to manage the cycles as well in this respect. Hanover is very in tuned with the ILS market and has been for a very long time through all your K series of issuances. Given that experience, that long experience as a sponsor, What's your assessment of the ILS market's appetite at the moment? We've seen very good traction lately. We had record number of transactions. The volume has increased in 21. It was an excellent year. We are on the same trajectory. 
you know that we're a catwalk player, we're, we're a transformer of the business, we issue transactions with many different parties. And I'm quite optimistic that we will continue to be successful there. The market volume, however, generally is relatively stable. You have some fresh capital coming, and there might be fresh capital coming because of the, the price momentum. Uh, but there are also withdrawals. There are some people who are a little bit sick and tired of incurring losses. It has been a few years of losses. You need to have stamina and the marathonian spirits to beat that game. So all in all, I would expect a largely stable market in the short term. But if prices go very significantly up, then there might be some fresh capital coming in. Do you think that's almost that psychology that we have at the moment where we've had so many bad years one after the other that it's difficult for people to remember that very often you can, of course, you can have 10 clean years in the next 10 years might be clean and it's perfectly statistically reasonable that that could be the case without a major loss. How much do you think the psychology plays into investors' minds? I think it's huge. I think particularly those who are maybe not specialists, more like the clients who want to put some of their assets into this asset class. There's a lot of psychology around it. There was a phase where they didn't incur any losses and probably was this perception that it's a free lunch. <laughs> perception had to change four or five years ago, of course. But I think we need to look at a longer time frame. And all in all, we feel that's you know, an area where you can be successful, you can grow, and where there's always interest. I think the alternative market generally, ILS is a category in the market will, will stay and is a sophisticated part of the market. They would expand into new areas. We had a very interesting deal in the life area, for example. So this is here to stay and part of the value proposition for Hanoverville. You mentioned before about inflation, but you also mentioned about COVID. And I've got another question for you on that coming up. But on inflation, you know, I grew up in the 1970s, and this is the first time we seem to have got back. I suppose the late 80s, we had a little bit of high inflation again. It almost feels like the 1970s over again, particularly with the energy situation and a sort of new kind of cold or hot war emerging at the same time. How are you responding to this global inflation? What do you think the most benign scenarios might be? And what do the worst scenarios look like? I mean, obviously, we live in a world that has inflation all the time. It's just now it's a quite a large order of magnitude higher than it usually is. I think that there's a feeling of deja vu, although I'm 72, I was just eight year old. But I remember walking as a pedestrian on the highways because the cars could not be driven on Sundays in Switzerland at the time. <laughs> Some deja vu, but clearly an environment which is very challenging for the whole industry. This would be the possibly one of the key topics uh, to be discussed in Monte Carlo later this year. And of course, you have a few levers to manage that. Uh, on the reserving side, obviously, you have a buffer or not. We're very happy to have been conservative in the past and always put some extra reserves uh, on our business so we, we can sustain some higher level of inflation and manage our reserves. And then going forward, it's about pricing. That's why I said it's going to be important in the, in the context of the renewals. And you need to make sure that expected inflation will be well reflected in the pricing. Of course, then the question is how long this level of inflation will prevail. And that's the key question which will determine the magnitude of the scenarios. If it's a short thing, there's a peak and things start to stabilize in the course of 2023, that's a totally different scenario. 
for a sustained period of high inflationary environment, it will be very difficult. And very difficult for our clients who face the reaction from consumers. And clearly, from a political point of view, this will be a hot topic if it stays for longer. So clearly, top of mind. And we need to use these levers to manage the impact of inflation. So it's just about being on top of everything. What about attachment points as well? Presumably, they'll be eroding. If they're eroding at 10%, you've got to be on top of those, haven't you? I mean, you have indexation clauses in some classes, but not in everywhere. No, that's clear. I mean, we have a part of the portfolio with index clause, so, so that can work. But this is not the case in the United States. Yeah. It's more of a European play. That means that you need the right assumptions to reflect them in, into a structure of pricing. And attachment points might be part of the discussion, of course. And on the capital side, obviously, everyone's taking a nominal hit. Presumably, in general, that's actually a positive when the higher yields start to feed through on government bonds. Exactly. We also feel the impact slowly but surely, and we have a duration in our asset phase, which is around six years, so, so steadily. Over time, you gain from an improved environment and better returns on the investment side. Obviously, over time, that could act as a challenge to the need for price adjustments, but this is not the case today. So we see that as a positive for us. I mentioned about that. I asked you about COVID. It is fascinating, this industry, that we have something really big happens. We talk about it for two or three quarters, and then about four quarters later, we never talk about it anymore, and you can't see it in anyone's results, and there's no line there specifically mentioning it. So what's happened with COVID? Obviously, we have stopped talking about it. What's your gut feeling, and how are things playing out now that the loss is maturing, or it's at the early stages of maturing, at least we can start to see what some of the court cases or claims have actually materialized? I agree with your assessment. It feels a bit like the news flow for a few quarters. We heard a lot about that, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's still in the numbers, but it's not a big topic. I think most of the, the major insurers have taken quite conservative actions, assumptions on the ultimate loss related to COVID on the PNC side. That's what we did as well. We, we booked on a net basis 950 million euro as of end of 2020. Since then, we've seen that in some lines, uh, we were approximately right on our assumptions. And in some instances, like credit and surety is a distinctive line of business, we were possibly too conservative. And that's why in Q2, you might have seen that we have adjusted our provision yeah. for expected COVID claims. We're down to about 870 million with about a third IDNR. That's where we stand. I'm quite confident that this is what it takes to run through the remaining cases and no surprise will happen. But the other part of our business, the life and health business, of course, is very much impacted. In fact, as much impacted as the PSE business. And this is still ongoing. The number of people who die from COVID has fortunately decreased significantly. And we see that in our numbers. Mortality is not as huge as it was a year or two ago, but it's still impacting the life business to watch. There's always this risk of a new variant of the virus, which doesn't really keep up protected with the vaccination. You know, low risk in my view, but when we see in the numbers that in the course of this year, we, we might have much less excess mortality. I suppose people are still dying in an excess number. That's true, but also I mean, you know, the difference that at the time people were not tested. Now everybody's tested. Yeah. So you might have a lot of people who might die from another ailment and are tested positive, but they might not be COVID. So 
as much as the, the statistics might have been a bit too low, might be too high today. You mentioned about that IBNR portion now being only a third. That's come way down, hasn't it? That means so you've got a lot more certainty now. So two thirds of that loss has been reported. Yes, this is more precise today, first of all, because we have more visibility on the different lines of business. Secondly, we, we have much better data from the clients. And thirdly, we decided in many cases where there were differences in views, it would be much better to find a negotiated outcome and come to terms with a, a number which is fair to our clients, but fair to us. And then we settle and that creates certainty. That's good to hear. What was that potential for reinsurance disputes that sounds like your policy has been to try and avoid them? Yes, we generally avoid them. I mean, it's never a good thing to go into arbitration with a long-standing client, so that's not something we want to do. That's not something you can always avoid, of course. It happens. In a significant majority of cases, we could have very good discussions, uh, lay out the differences in that perspective, and come to a settlement which was deemed fair on, the, on both sides, sometimes also related to potential new business growth in the future. This also helped in settling uh, the, the claims. Well, it's good to hear because the combination of a big outside and unexpected loss and a harder market could have had a different outcome perhaps 20 years ago. Absolutely. Agree with you. Something else that's happening in the market, and certainly in the last two years since we last spoke, has been this really explosive growth in hybrid fronting carriers, particularly in the US market. We had some news about Transverse being acquired, but there's been billions of dollars flowing through this market that was not there before. What's driving that? And how much are reinsurers like yourselves responsible for this? It does seem to be a reinsurance conduit type play. And obviously, it's been posited to me as a theory that reinsurers have missed out on some of that more small commercial business over the years as insurers have got bigger and those insurers have got more global and you have more global relationships with them. But you've missed out on some of that more stable business or smaller company business. Do you think there's any truth in that? Or what else is driving it, jean jacques It's really fascinating what's going on. You might be closer to the action on this one than, than I am. You know, I felt in terms of reinsurance volumes and transactions that uh, this was not a, an explosive growth. You know, I saw some, some increased interest. You, you have a number of uh, established fronting reinsurers, of course, where one of them has been quite a successful few years doing that actively. But I haven't seen much more in terms of uh, volume. There might be more insurance plays at hand. And I can not really tell you where the drivers are. It's not one of your lines of you're looking at your growth assumptions. You're not saying, hey, I'm going to be backing all of these hybrid carriers. No, no, this is certainly not our target. We're steady. Uh, we want to work with people we know well, want to grow in that trade, but steadily without rush and without adding new names, which we don't know very well. So we'll remain cautious. There might be players entering that space. That's true. But I couldn't tell you exactly their drivers and why they would want to do that. Something else I want to ask you about is cyber from a reinsurance perspective. Obviously, we've had a fantastic repricing of the cyber environment, maybe 300% price rise over the last couple of years. And they've got a handle on some of this ransomware explosion that they've had. But we seem to be pointing at a potential shortage of capacity at some point where the big reinsurers are going to say, actually, there's only so much more of this that I can take, that my balance sheet can take. And maybe you like this business or you don't like this business, but in general, you've got an appetite for cyber. And at some point, it's going to be full up. 
because it's still obviously rate has been growing. And of course, the class is growing just organically anyway, as take up increases. How much closer do you think now? Obviously, we've had a lot of investment in cyber modeling companies and all sorts of things going on. And of course, some attempts at getting the ILS world to help increase capacity for cyber. How much closer do you think we are to covering the big cat risk in cyber, you know, to the point where at least we can continue the growth trajectory that is there? No, that's a fair challenge in the market. We're getting closer to that point as far as Hanover is concerned. We have about a decade of experience where we've been accumulating experience, increasing our capabilities in terms of managing the portfolio, managing exposures, interacting with our clients, and teaming up with the best underwriters in the market. But we are, you know, at about half a billion of premium in that space, which is considerable. We look at it as an attractive line of business where indeed price momentum has been quite impressive. But I think there are two responses to the potential for growth. The first, and you mentioned it, the capital markets and the hope that we can structure some covers which might be attractive to the capital markets. Then down the road, unavoidably so, and this is possibly a bit controversial, public-private partnerships, where at some stage one might need a framework to delimit the market and give us the opportunity to further growth grow without having this huge accumulation potential and which limits the potential for growth of any company. Uh, so we need to engage with the public sector on this uh, five years down the road, not earlier. So this is an important part of future strategies. But growth, as if it was business as usual, is not in the cards. We cannot grow exponentially as a single company in the cyberspace. We need new, fresh ideas. We need retrocession and down the road, possibly a framework which gives clear boundaries to the cyber market. Do you think we might get that policy response from governments around the world? Or like with TRIA, do you have to wait for an actual big loss, a big crisis before they act? That's the unfortunate truth that action in politics comes when there is an emergency. So that might be the trigger point, a big cyber incident or acute awareness from the public sector on the capacity shortage and, and the demand which cannot be met. That might also trigger a discussion. But indeed, I fear that you're right, a big cyber event followed by a retrieval of capacity might be the platform. You might get government to take away some of the big force majeure risk by policy or by legislation or... Exactly. So that's the risk of default for any player in the market. It's uh, mitigated. That would be the way to go. It's not that I want to put the burden on the public sector, but as a private sector company, of course, you know, you need to protect the shareholders' position. And how much closer do you think we are to unlocking some of that ILS capacity that might be available? Between two and five years, is my guess. So it's starting to be possible in the midterm. Everybody's working very hard on this. It's not easy, I have to confess. But I think the accumulation of knowledge on how to manage aggregates and the performance and track record of some of the best players speak a good story and might attract investors. So with the right structure, I'm confident that we'll get there. Obviously, another really massive thing that's been happening this year is the Ukraine war. It's affected you. How do you view this as a loss? Do you think it's a big market-changing type loss, a watershed-type 
moment? Or do you think it's just a large loss that is business as usual for those who write aviation war and marine war, etc.? The geopolitical implications of what is unfolding now have a very strong bearing on the whole industry, clearly. A world which is going to be less globalized in practice that impacts the value proposition and the model of the insurance players. But there's a lost potential. It's hard to say today. It will all depend on the length of the war, but also on the legal proceedings, which are very likely now in connection with aviation, where the firm view that there is no coverage in the majority of cases, but this will need to be confirmed by courts. Beyond that, it's certainly a challenging and difficult to predict type of event. And it'll take a bit of time until we can put precise numbers at this stage. We have a broader set of scenarios. And the key driver is the length of the war. If diplomacy prevails again, things will clarify relatively quickly. So, so it's hard to say today, is it a you know, watershed event changing the industry logic? Or is it just a simple loss? Probably it's a, just in between. But I suppose, it, has it thrown up anything that was not really expected? We're of the firm view that these cases of the aircraft in Russia is not to be covered due to sanctions. I still think this will trigger some risk management reactions in the industry on accumulation scenarios. Because certainly this was a scenario which was not in the risk reports of most companies. Rethinking scenarios and considering what it means in practice on terms and conditions and on pricing, of course, would be a logical consequence of this event. You can imagine. Of course, some, some of those Chinese airline fleets, of course, are the largest in the world. And so who knows that the values there are astronomical. So Innovation management is, is uh, top of mind for underwriters across the world. Obviously, another thing, the three-letter abbreviation of the last two years since we last spoke has been ESG. What do you think about how the industry is advancing? Do you think we need some kind of common framework? Because obviously, it's something that's permeating everything. Our clients, your sedents, everybody is going to go right through to your ILS investors. Are we anywhere near to getting a coherent ESG common framework that we can all agree on? We're not yet near it. I think most stakeholders would say that's what we need. I would add my voice to that. It's important that we agree on common standards, on common definitions to simplify our life. We don't want to, to spend our time filling out forms. Especially if there'll be hundreds of different formats of the same Exactly. Idea. So that doesn't add value to you know, our sustainability strategy. And it keeps people busy with the wrong tasks. So we need to make sure that there are common frameworks, common standards, common ways of measuring CO2 output. And with that common basis, we can really start making tangible progress, more transparency, more comparability between players and markets. So that should be the goal. At this stage, it's still a bit fragmented. The EU is a front runner. They're doing good work to progress in that space. There is a lot of emphasis on the E, of course, the climate change debate. The S, social, is also going to be part of it. And it includes different dimensions from diversity and inclusion to corporate social responsibility. This is also important. And the G for governance cannot be omitted. And there we, we have made 
significant progress in terms of corporate governance, standards of disclosure, transparency, reporting. So as a whole, if I take the three letters, I would say quite some progress across the board with a lot of emphasis on the E, the environmental and sustainability question. And here you need global standards. That's the ultimate goal and my hope for the midterm. We're in the middle of a, what we hope is a short-term energy crisis relating to the war in Ukraine with Russian gas. Obviously, a lot of economies are considering higher carbon alternatives to gas. Coal, for example, reactivating some old coal assets. How as a reinsurer can you navigate this type of position where we seem to be going backwards at the moment? What can we be doing as reinsurers? Or do we just have to kind of take what comes and defer to higher authorities, i.e. governments? Yeah, this is a difficult one, of course. You know, there is a short-term play, which is you know, the government must address the short-term concerns. Energy security is now top of mind. Climate change is not going away, no. so we keep our course of action. We need to be extremely serious and disciplined. We need to show progress. Measurement is an important one. Transparency and disclosure is another one. And, and then dialogue with our customers, because it's important that the, the primary players continue to make progress around the world. When we see more traction in Europe than in other areas of the world, but I think a lot is happening and we keep them as a top priority. Short term, we will see what needs to be done to support governments in their attempts to address problems in the adequate way. It is our feeling that we need to be responsible and to think for the good of society if there is a short term need to support the extension, for example, of existing facilities. We will not decline them as a principal position. Particularly, I suppose, when it's cold and people otherwise may be freezing to death. Exactly. But that would not be more than a short-term consideration in case the industry is asked to support. But the main agenda point for us is that we address the contribution we can make on climate change. And this is on our research activities, but also in terms of investments. There again, you know, the mechanism could give us some better incentives to contribute more on climate adaptation. I think of infrastructure investment, which are needed in the next decades. We can play a bigger role in there. But we need a bit more incentives as the capital requirements. So sovereignty two reforms and things like that might help. That might be you know, one way to go for it, making sure that solvency energy also takes care of the need and the value of investing into asset classes, which are good from an ESG point of view. Well, Jean-Jacques, I've come to the end of my questions. I see we're just about to run out of time. So I just want to thank you for spending so much time with me, being such a diligent answer of all my questions. I really, really appreciate your time. And I hope it's less than two years until our next meeting. You have an awful lot on your plate at the moment. So I wish you all the best. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Marco. Real pleasure to be part of the show. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. 
Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>